Well, good morning in town. Hope you all are doing well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Some of you know I have five young children. And so after, uh, over the last three, four years or so, I have had the interesting opportunity to reacquaint myself with the Disney animated movie canon over and over and over again. And I made an interesting observation, at least the last watch through of many movies. I realized that um, the villains in many Disney movies that are made for young children have rather gruesome and tragic ends. Um, but, But what's interesting about the way that all of these villains perish is that they don't die at the hand of the hero. Rather, there's some sort of accident or there's some fatal flaw that they have that leads them to this horrific end. Now, I don't know if as a child I picked up on that or not. I think Disney did it and continues to do it today to maintain the innocence and the nobility of their uh, protagonist. But I do know that as a young boy, I began very quickly to transition out of loving such movies. Why? Because I wanted my heroes to wield the sword of justice personally. I loved it when the hero got to fight the villain and overcome. I loved it especially when the hero actually gave the villain mercy to some extent, Uh, but then the villain didn't want to take it. And so the villain would go for the gun or take a hostage or do something that would give the hero the permission to execute justice, let's say, with extreme prejudice. So why do I say all that? Because today we've been in a series uh, called when, Trusting God When There's No Normal. Um, and for the last few weeks, we've been looking at a book in which a normal that we're usually not acquainted with has become normal. In First Peter, First Peter is a letter that is written by the Apostle Peter to those who are deeply suffering, whose world has literally been turned upside down. And in today's passage, we're going to deal with Peter turning upside down the ethics of the people of God, what it means for us actually to encounter others in the world as followers of Jesus. I'm going to have Stacy read for us and we'll pray. Our scripture today comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you in advance, as much as sometimes our souls fight against that thanking, for the hard surgery that you do on our hearts each and every day to make us more like you. Help us, Lord God, to find joy in that process and find joy in doing your will, even in a broken world. We pray this in your name. Amen. So here's what I'm interested in today. In some respects, our passage today is Peter's restatement um, of a common thing in Christianity, something that Jesus taught us all the way back in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, which is that we are to turn the other cheek. In detail, it's how we're supposed to respond as a church and as individuals when people actively desire for us to suffer, when they actively desire us harm, when they actively desire to persecute us, how are we supposed to respond to them? Peter talks about that in this passage, just as Jesus did in Matthew chapter 5. But what I'm interested in this morning is why, just like I, as a young boy, rejected my Disney movies of the past for Die Hard and Dirty Harry, for the types of films that had that sense of satisfaction in the justice of the hero, why in some respects, culturally, are we allergic to an ethic like this? Why do we say maybe on, on the, the top of things as Christians, yes, we're supposed to turn the other cheek, but when we really get down to the nitty-gritty of it, we qualify this teaching to death because we don't like it. I think there's something culturally in us that drives us away from that. What is that? Well, in some respects, it's that we love competition. We love seeing somebody win and somebody lose. We don't like seeing the guy in a marathon running and trip five feet before the finish line and then the guy who is in second place wins. We don't want that. We want someone to win and someone to lose. We like bravery and courage. We want there to be valor in the hero and we want there to be horrendous evil in the end, and we want the satisfaction of knowing that good wins out over evil, seeing justice done. Now, here's the thing. In many respects, these are wonderful characteristics of a Christian. They're wonderful characteristics in many respects of our society, and yet somehow put together, they lead us to stumble over the very ethic, the very way of life, the very worldview that our God would call us to. So this morning, very, very quickly, three questions I want us to answer together. Just what is this ethic? Let's review it. 
What did it mean for the people Peter was writing to? And what does it mean for us today? What's the ethic? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? First of all, what is this ethic? Again, this reaches all the way back to Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to turn there right now, but the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon on a mountain where Jesus Christ uh, gives a, a whole host of many sermonettes to a group of gathered people. And all of these teachings, or at least many of them, revolve around this dynamic that the law says to do one thing. And the law is not wrong. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. And yet, the way in which the people of his day were following that law seemed to only inhabit the letter of that law and not the spirit or we could say the ethic that Jesus expects of the people of God and that he, in fact, helps the people of God to become. So this is why we see teachings about divorce in that passage, teachings about fasting, teachings about prayer, lots of different things. But one teaching, again, that I've already referred to in, um, in, in common language is called turning the other cheek. Jesus replies to a very well-known law, um, which is present in Deuteronomy chapter 20. It's also present in a lot of older law codes, like the Code of Hammurabi and others, which is colloquially known as an eye for an eye. The idea being, if I do something to you, what was done to you can be done back to me. Now, this on the playground is not a good idea, right? All the time I have my children coming to me, and when I get on to them for pulling the other's hair, the answer almost always is, but she pinched me first. They did something to me first, and that gives them the justification. So we usually think of this eye for an eye passage as a bad thing. At the end of the day, actually, though, an eye for an eye was a wonderful law. We might not think about it today, but what an eye for an eye did was to prevent escalation. So you can imagine, especially in a time without some of the formal uh, law codes or court systems or police, um, we would live in more tribal structures, and maybe I would do something, and I would do something horrible, like I would steal something from somebody. Well, that person would be horrifically offended, and so they would turn around, and they would steal much more from me. Well, then we got something going, and so I would go, and I would cut off their hands so they could stop stealing from me. So they would come, and they would kill me, and then my brother would be required by honor to go burn their house down, and then they would come and slaughter my family, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. An eye for an eye actually allowed for an individual to expect the satisfaction of justice without fearing that there would be further escalation and further repercussions for justice. All that being said, what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 is to say that while you can, can or while you are allowed to require an eye for the eye that was dealt to you, you don't have to. And as Christians, as those who are not only living by the letter of the law or the letter of wisdom, but rather those who want to correctly image God, we get the opportunity 
to not require that I for the I, but rather we simply get the opportunity to forgive. We get the opportunity to offer grace and mercy to other people. Jesus will go into this in many respects, but Peter here in chapter 3 of 1 Peter deals with the same thing in different language, and that's what I want to look at this morning. Peter says in verse 9, don't repay, repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, evil with good, evil with blessing, for to this you were called. The point being here, why can't we take this even a step further? And just as Peter said to pray, or Jesus said to pray for our enemies, why can't we also, when evil is done to us, return good for evil, blessing for pain and sorrow? In the passage in uh, verses 10 through 12, he goes on to quote Psalm 34, and then he makes this sort of proverbial statement. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? In many respects, this is the ethic of our age. Many people would say, right, like, why are you going to have enemies if you're a good person? If everybody really likes you and you're not doing anything wrong or bad, well, no one's going to come after you, right? But Peter says, you know, in some respects that that's true. And yet, because we're Christians, we know, based on Jesus telling us, our very existence, our very way of life, our very personhood, believing ourselves to be made in the image of God, is actually going to invite persecution. It's going to invite evil. And so how do we respond to that regardless of whether we, let's say, asked for it or not? And he goes through and talks about how we uh, don't have need to fear, how we uh, are supposed to prepare um, a defense, if you will. But even in many of these things, as we, we go through them, we recognize that, that itch. Maybe, maybe we, I, recognize that itch in myself to qualify, to say, yes, I'm supposed to prepare a defense, but isn't the best defense a good offense? You know, if, if, if my God's honor gets impugned, aren't I supposed to go back at it because I love Jesus so much? Of course I'm not supposed to fear people because I'm, I want to be stronger and better and bigger and smarter than they are. But then he says, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. That idea may be ashamed is passive, not active. It means I'm not the one doing the shaming. It's not my job to prepare the one-two punch so that somebody gets the back end of feeling bad about going after Christians and then the church shames them and they never do it again. Rather, what we're seeing here is this image that Jesus again talks about in Matthew 5 of us being salt and light in the world. Salt is a flavoring. It's a preservative. We are meant, just as Peter says, to do good in our world, not simply because our world, right now at least, likes people 
who don't make waves and who make the world a better place, but rather that the world becomes a better place because those who have been made in the image of God and whose lives are being transformed to look like Jesus, that in and of itself is supposed to have massive ramifications for the world. This is the ethic to which we are called, that we would make the world better in our experience of suffering. Now that sounds great until you actually apply it. As much as we sometimes think of Peter's people as the early church, as this super pious, righteous group of people who never struggled, that is not the case. They deeply struggled with the fact that they were suffering. What did it mean for them? Well, they had a background in revolt. You see, for many, many years, in fact, a couple of centuries, there had been a number of so-called messiahs in the Jewish and Greco-Roman community. There had been a number of people who had risen up, said Rome was horrible, sometimes even out of a Jewish culture, and so they would have quoted the Old Testament passages about the Messiah. They would have gotten a group of people together. Eventually, a spark would have gotten off, and we would be in absolute revolt. Well, Rome didn't like that too much. They would come. They would quash that revolt. Eventually, you'd have a couple of people gathering in a final stand, and then there you have it. What Peter is speaking to is a group of people who he has to rewire, who he has to completely download a different way of living into so that they are not part of a revolution, if you will, of power, but rather a revolution of the image of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God through Jesus coming into the world. These people dealt, yes, with persecution, with being captured and fed to lions. They dealt with their loved ones dying around them, but they also dealt with being ostracized socially. In fact, the context we're not going to go into, but uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, previous to this passage, is a whole discussion of how wives were supposed to treat their husbands. Now, we usually don't like talking about those things in our culture, but the real reason for Peter doing it was because in Roman society, the expectation was if you're married to a man, ladies, you would have to follow his religion. So how do you deal with the fact that you have met Jesus and you follow him now, and yet suddenly you are still supposedly, by convention of the day, required to be a believer in the imperial cult, to worship Caesar, to worship the Roman gods. What do you do? What does it mean when every single social gathering includes worship to idols? Do you stop going to your friend's graduation party because you know there's going to be a sacrifice to an idol there? Do you stop going to the wedding of a friend because you know there will be a religious ceremony there? If you wonder whether I'm talking about ancient Rome or today, yes. Because these are the questions we're still struggling with today. As the church, do you go to the wedding of a friend if 
complex sexual ethics are involved? Do you attend a gathering of neighbors if sin is going to happen at that gathering? How do you deal with being a parent and being intimately engaged with other families who don't necessarily share your values? These are complex questions. They're the same questions, though, in many respects that the early church was struggling with, too. Here's, I think, the grace in this passage. Theologian N.T. Wright talks about the early church not as a group of superheroes who, because of their proximity to Jesus, were somehow better Christians than any of us. That's why I'm always a little bit wary of movements that say, oh, if we only just got back to the early church, things would be better. Rather, what was, was in fact helpful about the early church, Wright talks about, was that it was a safe space to fail and to practice the very things that the early church needed to do when they did respond to the world. I've been thinking a lot about this statement I just jotted down in my notes that the church should be the safest place to suck. This should be the place where we are not good at receiving criticism. This should be the place where we are not good at suffering. And then we're able to confess it. The church should not be a a peaceful place without conflict, but a place where real conflict happens But so too does reconciliation happen because we are a people being shaped by Jesus. In fact, this means I need you just like you need me. We need each other to be vessels of the Holy Spirit to shape us to deal with a culture outside of us. We don't need each other to defend us from a culture that is outside of us, but to aid us in loving them well. So that gets into what does it mean for us? What does this ethic to return not evil for evil, but good for good mean to us? Maybe not you, but in my experience, unfortunately with people in the church, we tend to visualize ourselves and the other, the culture, the world, really as, as, as diametrically opposite points on a graph. The reality of this passage calls us to live, in many respects, very much parallel lives and existences where we are able to seek the good of those who are around us. The the connotation, the assumption, in fact, is not that Peter's people have drawn themselves out or away from the culture, but rather that in their day-to-day experiences with their culture, as their Christianity rubs up against a culture that is antagonistic to them, in the process of experiencing that and seeking the good for these people, something happens. It is not in lobbing grenades across a great chasm that the world comes to know Jesus, 
but in that tiny, difficult tension space between us and them. I say tiny because it is tiny. We so often emphasize the, um, the great chasm that we miss, that we are all made in the image of God together, and that we have, in fact, great continuity with our, our neighbors. At the same time, I emphasize the tension because, as Jimmy talked about last week, there are some real questions and real problems. There's real sin and real brokenness in the world, and those complexities unfortunately lead us to not always be able to come to agreement on everything with our neighbors. So what do we do? Normally, we respond in one of two ways. We either syncretize together or we run for the hills, praying hopefully that we can shoot each other as we make that run for the hills. Jimmy talked more last week about the idea of syncretism, but effectively it's simply this, that if I hate conflict, I'm passive, and you and I have some difference between my Christianity and your view of Christianity or my view of Christianity and your view of something else, we're just not going to talk about it at all. Or if we do talk about it, we're going to so emphasize the parts in which we agree that we never talk about what divides us. Maybe eventually, even as a church or a denomination or just individually, we will change our own views to make it more like theirs just because we don't like the conflict. It's easier. But just as dangerous is that we would oppose one another that we take the opposite stance, which sees another's view as the enemy which we must crush. Theologian Miroslav Wolf, a Croatian by birth who saw many, many frustrating and broken places of conflict in his own country, said we cannot, because we have the tendency to, allow our enemies to define us. I laughed as much as I find her to be a a, a wonderful woman of character when Michelle Obama at the Democratic National Convention in 2016 said, when they go low, we go high. Because, of course, all of the political systems in our nation uh, struggle deeply with turning the other cheek, to put it mildly. But the church is, in fact, supposed to be the place where instead of learning from the culture how to respond best against the culture, that we operate in a different way. Instead of, as our culture often does, making talking back and forth and debating into a sport, what would it look like for us to legitimately innovate and figure out how to seek the good of our neighbors? how to acknowledge the painful differences between us, but to do so in such a way that our neighbors are left astounded that we could believe the things we believe, but also love them the way we are called to love them. I think this leads us to today what this is supposed to mean for us. We do not live in a culture or in a place where someone's just going to get offended and come up to us and slap us 
And so because of that, the idea of turning the other cheek usually just becomes one of those truisms that we learn at VBS and then never think about again. Because outside of the playground bully, we're usually not in a place in our society where someone's going to punch us. But all the time we are in interactions with other people that we have to respond either in a way to win an argument, to overcome a difficulty, or to have the opportunity to extend the graces of Jesus to them. What does it mean, friends, to not learn from the enemy, to operate online in your discussions about politics, about social issues, about sports, not with the all shucks feeling of, hey, we can be friends, but I've really got to defend my guy or my position. But what if our enemies were astounded, shamed even, by the graciousness of our responses, by thanking them for their perspective, by trying very quickly to move the conversation offline, by taking them out to eat, or at least whatever serves for that in our age right now, and having a real friendship. I am personally struggling to confess to you that this is one of the major issues for me, that, that, that I don't have a lot of non-Christian friends. And so when I think about this passage here, I deeply desire that I might have connections with a broken world, something I need to work on, such that real friction will happen, <laughs> actual living together will happen, and I am able, therefore, not in sort of some agenda-laden way, but just in the very day-to-day aspects of my life, to live the gospel before them. That's what Peter's getting at here. It is great to memorize scriptures, to learn apologetic defenses, to deal, to know how to respond to some of the questions of the world. In fact, I think it's deeply important, but it is just important that we might learn how to have those conversations and not simply the zingers of answers to quote-unquote win those conversations. Lastly, and this is when I, I preface, again, a place I'm, I'm struggling. I'm sorry, when I preach to you all, I'm really just talking to myself. This is kind of how this works. I think we as Christians, we must be called to grieve openly without playing the victim. Now, I, I preface that realizing that that idea of playing the victim is commonly and wrongly attributed to other groups or other perspectives in our world. And so I don't use it, and I'm not saying it now, trying to connect it at all to that. But in keeping with that idea that I don't have many non-Christian friends, if I did, and I'm suffering, is it not our Christian calling not to try to not appear weak as our culture would call us to, to say everything's okay, to circle our wagons, but rather to suffer openly, to experience pain and to allow others into our pain 
in such a way as they would see us experience pain and suffering differently? What if something happens to you and because you live next door to your neighbor, the way in which you go through that is the very thing that shows them how different you are? Whether that thing is getting COVID-19, whether that thing is how to deal with COVID-19, whether that thing is how you deal with them wearing a mask or them steadfastly refusing to do so, whether that thing is that they are on a school board that made a decision that is different than yours or whether that thing is that they are putting a sign in their yard that is different than the perspective of the sign in your yard. Will the world know Jesus, not only by how we live, not only by our piousness, by us going to church or sending a Christmas card, or our kindness, but also in the way that we suffer, in the way that we deal with conflict? Will they know Jesus better because of our worst day, not only our best? Would you pray with me? Part of me, Jesus, wants to pray, come quickly, because I doubt my own ability to do that. But you're greater than that. And Holy Spirit, you never give us an imperative to do in your scripture without also being present in our hearts to shape us and empower us to that end. So even right now, I pray for that, Lord Jesus. Help us, help me to do that which I cannot. In your name, amen.